this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Diaz and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at digmeoutunion.com or dmounion.com. Jay, we're back with a round table. Once a month, we do these. Like clockwork. Tick tock. And it's our, it. it's our Patreon family, our union. If we were in Fast and Furious, I would refer to this as family constantly. But <laughs> Please don't do that. Okay. I mean, I love y'all, but... <laughs> do you like Corona, Jay? Do you like drinking Coronas and robbing banks and high-speed fa- high cars? And... Oh. Yeah. Only, so, only on Sunday. Right. So we let our... Uh, each month we let our patrons... At the board of directors and steering committee level, they pick what our roundtables are going to be. We threw up some wow card options and producers of the 90s was the was the vote getter. So to help us, we reached into our our, our Rolodex of previous guests and said, who do we know? That is a producer of records, or has produced. And it just so happened, Jay, that we were in a band, mm-hmm. and someone produced our records, right? Along with like a lot of other records. I don't know if you go to Discogs and you look up this guy's discography, you're going to see a lot of records. I don't even know if he knows how many records that he's produced. It was probably all a big blur, <laughs> a big blur of caffeinated drinks and late nights and. Do you know, Neil Schmidt is back with us. You might remember him from the Stone Roses and from previous other episodes. But Neil, do you know how many records you produced? I had a an Excel spreadsheet at one time that I have not probably looked at for a while, but no. And and then that kind of hi everybody, thanks. And that would bring up the other point is like, well, did I engineer it or did I officially produce it? You know, ah. right? There's a there's some distinction at the regional level that probably is different than at, you know, even like a solid indie label level and above, you know, those roles get a little bit, cause there's more money at stake. So. Sure. Sure. Okay. Well, 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 well then we'll have to get into that about what, what all that stuff is. And then the man who came up with this idea, he joined us for the modest mouse round table a couple months ago. Welcome back, Mr. Johnny Hooper. Welcome Johnny. Well, thank you for having me. And I've produced zero records, but I have produced one child. Well, there you go. That's something. I think we have all produced at least one. <laughs> <laughs> well, none of No, no, no. Let me take that back. None of us have produced. We have taken part in the creation, the production. Co-produced. We, we co- co- co-produced. <laughs> we, were, we were more than the engineer. Yeah, uh, we were not the producer. We, we made sure the mics were all set up right. <laughs> <laughs> all the levels were good. Yeah, we were <laughs> exactly. 
I don't want to get in trouble. That's what I'm saying. We want to talk about, first of all, we want to set the baseline for this discussion when we talk about producers of the 90s. What does a producer do in the studio with a band? And how is that different from a mixer, an engineer? Does it incorporate those skills? Does it, is it different? I'm going to turn to you, Neil, since you have okay. studio experience. Can you give us and our listeners a uh, an idea of when you have a producer credit, what does that mean on a record? It's a it's a really interesting relationship. So a couple things. Um, probably the first, I kind of will just use a major label um, model for now to make it because there's a lot of, that breaks off of that. But but at a at a major label and a pretty healthy budget label level, the producers probably main responsibility is to bring the record in on time and on budget. And, but the relationship is tricky because the producer sometimes is picking from a short list that the band gives the label, or sometimes the producer is picked from a short list that the label gives the band. And that seems like the loyalty for the producer should be with the artist. And it is when they're in the studio, but bands come and go and producers want to work on more records. So reality, really their loyalty usually is with the label. And that's a really interesting relationship. And I think a lot of producers would argue that because they don't want to seem like they're selling out the bands. And I don't think that they purposely do sell out the bands. But if you look at the triangle of the relationship, that's something that you have to take into consideration. That bands come and go, and a music producer wants to work on a record for a long, long time. So who do they need to make sure they're answering to, and who do they need to make sure they're happy? Some band that got signed for two records that's not going to sell any records, or the label that signed them, tried them out, didn't work out, moved on, they've signed up a new band, and that producer would like to be in the queue for that. So... With, with that said, producers in the studio are there to sort of uh, funnel the creative direction of the record, both bringing in time financially in, in, in order, but also thinking about what's going to help sell records. So it may be helping pick content. It may be uh, rewriting and, and um, certain, you know, producers, especially, um, you know, there's a Nashville producer right now who plays on every single record that comes into his studio and he's super successful and people like that involvement. Other, uh, and in our pre-conversation, we were talking about someone like Rick Rubin who produced many, 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 many records and has, is a success record that no one can touch. And his, his input as a producer would be probably minimal on some of the records um, from the day-to-day operation. Um, he has handpicked a team that he trusts. There's probably a quick conversation early on. I'll be back in a couple months, make sure it sounds good. And, and so, you know, it can be from being in the studio every day to something like that where, you know, famously Rick Rubin was woken up on a couch. No, it doesn't sound good. And then goes back to sleep, you know, and now he's so busy. He's, but 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 he, again, his track record's unparalleled. So it can be a really hodgepodge of of things, from picking the studios to picking a different drummer to play on the record to um, you know finding you know songs to pick. And you know when Rick Rubin, I think he was much more involved with say like the Johnny Cash records as far as helping Johnny Cash pick out 
songs and, and that kind of stuff. So there's a array of things that can be involved in the studio for a producer. You wired me awake and hit me with the hand of broken nails. You tied my lead and pulled my chain to watch my blood begin to boil. But I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage and run. Too cold to start a fire, I'm burning diesel, burning... As opposed to an engineer, which, if it's done correctly, an engineer does not have an opinion on what happens, on whether anything sounds good or anything sounds bad. They are, they are pushing faders and placing mics and not spoken until spoken to sort of thing. Um, so mixing engineers slightly different usually called on for their expertise um and usually a mixing engineer will listen to what the producer has given and and their job is to make it that one percent or two percent better here's my vision but do what you do to, to make it a little bit better whatever that might mean um and mixing engineers producers aren't going to sit in the studio with a mixing engineer and handpick that stuff they'll listen to love it but here are the notes and then they give you know here's 10 changes you need to make. Um, and the producer has that final say with the band. So the, the engineer is happening is, is working concurrently with the producer. Whereas the mixer is it's after everything has been recorded and it's like the next step in the chain before it yes. goes to, yes. I guess, mastering. Correct. So the mastering then is the final step that puts that sheen and polish and makes uh, a collection of songs, uh, for better use of a word, an album. A, you know, it makes that collection coherent because um, things could be recorded at different times in different places by different songwriters. Um, and and yeah, so a mixing engineer, someone you know um, like a Michael Brower or a Chad Blake, who are in you know, popular cities, but people, but artists aren't usually attending those sessions. Um, that's usually all done remotely. Okay. Cause it's tedious and not required. The artist's input is not required. And so a producer is, is not necessarily like a, if you were to convert it over to like filmmaking, they're not a director who is standing there the entire time looking through the camera or looking at a screen and watching every single moment, a producer can be a bit more hands-off because they have, like you said with Rick Rubin, a crew that they have working for them. So he can bounce between, you know, being in, either at multiple studios or just being at home, essentially, and just getting yeah, in progress. Yeah, and again, there's a continuum. It's a continuum, you know, um, some of the producers we've talked about, you know, like Jay Robbins, who, who produced some really, really great records. He, sometimes he engineered those records, too. And, and with with the case of, you know, Stepford, that was definitely like a dual role. Right. right. So there's a continuum of being involved every single minute 
of the process and be, and usually because either the budget's not there or they don't trust anyone, you know, whereas Rick Rubin has a, had a coterie of different engineers and mixing engineers that he trusted who were all brought up through that. Um, and same thing with songwriters and, and things of that nature that, that these are people, part of the team that I can trust, you know, does, does a producer like Daniel Lenoir, you know, is he there every minute? No, but, but they generally are the, the, they're setting, they're the, they're the putting the, putting it in motion, you know, sort of a general manager for a, for a, a sporting team. But, and so in the case of, you know, to move over to the film analogy, you know, the director is going to be the creative and the, and the producer is going to be the money. And in some ways, the music producer is, is both of those things. You know, the band has already a vision of what they're about. You know, they've written songs or they're in the midst of writing songs or finding songs, you know, so they have their collective vision. And then it's it's translating that to something that might be more commercial is where a producer comes into play is usually either artistic help, commercial help or both. And then at a certain level, don't producers get have a financial stake in records yeah. that they make? Absolutely, that's a really so so, and that's called in the in the music industry they call that points. So uh, you know, uh, a producer might get one or two points on a record, which means that they're going to collect royalties as those records are sold. Usually. They get them, and this is, you know, depending on where you are in the spectrum of things, it could be from the initial sale. So a record sells for $10, 1 or 2% of that's going to go off to the producer, and then the label's going to get their cut on all the way down to where the band will get their 7 or 8%, um, but they'll never actually recoup any of the stuff they spent making the record. So that's usually how that works. Then, you know, if you want to, and, and uh, someone like Steve Albini, who I'm sure has been mentioned many different times throughout the hit, you know, the records you've worked on mm -hmm. talked about and dig me out, you know, he famous is famous for not taking points on a record. Like, why should I collect any royalties? And he really is the service industry side of what we do. I helped a band realize their vision, everything they've done, every creative input, all the songs they've written, all the hard work, all this time spent in the van has nothing to do with me. I'm just here in the service of them. And, you know, he will take money up front whether it's from Bush or Page Plant or Nirvana, but he won't take any points on the back end. But he doesn't also doesn't like to be called a producer. Right. Even though that's essentially what he's doing, but he he wants to be an he engineer. Would argue, he, would, he would argue he does not. I would argue that sonically his palette is very much what a producer would do in that there's a sort of certain vision, but but he would very, very much push back that he at all has anything to do with, with what their what the band is about. You know, famously, you know, like, you know, he never asks whether they're in tune. He never, you know, he would never ask, "Do you like that take?" It, it's not any of his job to care about that. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. A th something that's interesting to think about as you sort of lay out all the different, I guess, roles a producer can play. They sort of have to do whatever's necessary to get the record done according to the vision and then the budget and the timeline. So that can mean virtually anything. A lot of these folks that we're going to talk about did a lot of work. Like if you look at Albini, I mean, he's doing like sometimes 20 albums a year. Sure. Um, it's kind of mind boggling to think about. 
be having to be that flexible and <laughs> sort of um, adapting at all times, but then working on that many uh, records, which, you know, I suppose some of these, you know, didn't go on for a super long time, but, you know, in 93, when he's working on a, in utero, he's got, you know, uh, well over 15 or so other records he did that year. And I don't think they knocked out in euro in a week. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, have it's you kind ever, of amazing to think about like juggling all that. You're absolutely correct. Right. As far as, um, uh, and that, and that's why, um, cause you know, no one's in a very few people in this industry are in a financial situation to say no to a project, first of all. And then some, you know, some of those Albini records are going to be cut in a weekend. No, in utero was not, but yeah. you know, probably how many records did he work on? You know, the, the band comes in on Friday by Sunday, they're walking out with what they think, you know, what's done. And then again, someone else might be involved in the mixing process. And, and you know, there's all a whole bunch of stuff that's happening. But 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 you mentioned this and in, in it's it's on the Internet. The the Steve Albini letter to Nirvana, Nirvana about working on in utero is an amazing read um, on where he, his mind was and where working with Nirvana, I highly suggest Googling that it's, it's a really interesting read about, you know, let's go find a studio that's out of the way. I don't take points. You know, we could work at my studio, but people would know, and you know, you'd just be bothered by it. Um, I mean, it's a really, really interesting and, and love or hate Albini. I love that. He, he, he draws lines in the sand. He draws himself into a box and he's like, here it is. And I love it. I love it. Here, here. Now you mentioned about him having a studio, and, and there are other people like Butch Vig up in Wisconsin, and a number a number of other producers who actually own their own studios. And then there are people who work at studios, but don't necessarily. And like I'm thinking of like out in LA, there's a number of famous recording studios in New York as well, and. The producer will, you know, with the band, sort of take over a space. And I'm curious about, you mentioned about the, you know, the producer sort of having a loyalty first to the label. And I wonder if that's, if that's a line that some producers have with regards to, if they have their own space and they have their own, like, client list, essentially, are they as beholden to the labels as someone who relies on them to get them into studios. Like if you're going to get into electric Ladyland, or if you're going to get into um, the one out in LA that a bunch of people have recorded at like Tom Petty and Fleetwood Mac and sound city. sound city. That was it. You know, that's a famous studio, but it's just a studio. It's not like Rick Rubin's studio. It's just a studio that people have recorded at. So I want I just I'm, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that as far as like does Butch Vig is he a little bit more freer to 
work on what he wants to work on or or be you know a little bit more independent because he's got his place up in Wisconsin as opposed to if he was a guy that lived in LA and had to go to Sound City when he was on somebody's dime. Well, I think your loyalty is always to where the money is. And then in the case of, you know, there's a reason that not that most producers don't own a studio is that the 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 financial overhead is just a drag. Um, but they all have some sort of space that they can cut vocals, right? And and or relationships they work with studios to get discounts. Because then on a major label deal, the record comes in under budget. Guess who gets to keep the rest of the budget? The producer. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. And I hadn't thought about the just the the aspect of them having some role in the budget aspect of making a record. It almost makes it sound like they're a like project manager. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that definitely. And because who's done it before? You know, the new band that's been touring regionally and selling YouTube you know, or, you know, getting YouTube, you know, views or, you know, 20 years ago was, you know, you know, selling out your local venue two nights in a week, you know, okay, you've got experience doing that, but you have no idea what it takes to compete, you know, famously talking with, you know, a band from Columbus that got signed to a major label. They're like, yeah, you know, your rivalry is no longer, you know, the other band playing, you know, Chelsea's that night, it's Madonna. <laughs> That's your competition now. You know, like so who's got the experience doing that? And it's the producer who's done a record before, which is why someone like, you know, Tom DeLong from Blink One A Two or something like that, like he's got experience what it takes to be the band on that side. He's been in the studio probably working with, you know, tons of amazing engineers and amazing studios, making seeing what it takes to get a record to get done. And then he can turn that to produce someone else's record because I've done it now however many times, you know, so, so there's certain artists, um, producers like the guy from the paper chase, you know, who have that experience. And even if they weren't a successful band, if you've gone through the process a couple different times, you know what it takes to get, to drag a project to the finish line on time and under budget and something that might sell. So that's, this is a good spot for us to talk about some producers from the nineties, since this is a nineties podcast. And, Talk about what makes them unique, how they shaped that decade, and made some records that you know we've probably talked about and mentioned production while we were talking about them. Um, Neil, you had a big list of of folks. And well, let's get Tommy in here. I talked. Why, so why did he want to talk producers? Yeah, I'm curious. What Johnny? What were some of the producers that piqued your interest as far as doing this? Uh, well, you've already talked about Albini without a doubt. I mean, he has, um, Neil, you mentioned Sonic Palette. Like, I, I feel like bands went to him because he could produce a sound for you that was, um, I would say, identifiable, certainly to, like, when I think of the touch and go record sound, it's sure the Steve Albini sound, actually. You know, like I feel like half the bands on that label all have a very similar sonic palette, and it's in large regard due to him. Agreed, one hundred percent. Yep. Another one that comes to mind is um, Easily Recording. Doug Easily and Davis McCain. Uh, I think it's in. I want to say Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Memphis. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. 
And uh, I asso- like I would associate Albini with Touch and Go. I would associate Easley and McCain with Matador Records artists. Uh, I'm thinking Pavement. Um, I'm thinking, I think, uh, possibly Cat Power, maybe Guided by Voices. Just that that whole, the Grifters, that whole scene of um, kind of mid-90s Matador Records uh, artists. Um, I think of, uh, certainly Butch Vig had his hands all over uh, most of the bigger records of the 90s. But I don't know how much engineering he was necessarily doing on those. Like, if you look at uh, Sonic Highways, the Dave Grohl miniseries, you can see in there that, yeah, he's the producer, but he's also got that engineer at, at his beck and call at all times. I don't know if it was always like that. Two others that come to mind uh, would represent the Discord Records um kind of roster and that would be uh, Don Ziantara and Ted Nicely. And again, I feel like those two guys created a sound for a, a significant um, roster of artists on Discord. And you could kind of, by buying those records that were produced by those guys, you could expect a certain sound, I would say. And I kind of appreciated that. I think I bought some of those records simply because of the production associated with it. And also, uh, uh, in keeping with Albini, Bob Weston, who worked with Albini on In Utero, uh, is the bass player in Albini's band, Shellac. Uh, he is, his roster of um, production work in the 90s is incredible. Again, mostly with uh, touch-and-go artists, uh, June of 44, uh, Polvo, uh, Tar, uh, just a bunch of great records. And those are all at the top of my list, I would say. Phil Eck as well with Built to Spill and Modest Mouse. Those are just a few that come to mind right away. So let's let's dissect some of those because it's one thing to say that they're all unique in their own ways, but what is, like, what is Steve Albini doing that gives him a unified sound? regarding bands that he's producing or excuse me he's engineering since he doesn't like to be called a producer <laughs> right like when he's i hear fa- it he's famous for that drum sound um he's famous for a slightly muted vocal i would say uh it's a deep a little deeper in the mix uh it's like it's definitely the sound of a band playing in a room not a glossy finish of you know 20 overdubs um, you know, 30 layers of guitar. It's it's just this very clean band playing in a room and you can hear it and you still feel the uh, the rawness in something like, you know, the Jesus Lizard Records or in utero to this day, like 25, 27 years later. It's incredible. Yeah, agreed. I mean, his, he, you know, he's got that drum sound. He's got that, he always gets a gnarly, gnarly, uh, bass guitar sound, you know, dry vocals. Um, yeah. And, and whether it's cheap trick or scrawl or, you know, Nirvana, you know, before, um, and you can find the, the mix, the, the Albini mixes out there on the internet, you know, like there's definitely a, a similarity through all those that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't most often though it works. And I, I agree that bands picked him 
knowing they were going to get some version of that sound, which is so weird because it's filtered through his lens. And he would say, I have no lens, but his, you know, electrical audio and him, his work definitely has a, a, a sound, which is really interesting. Whereas, you know, someone like, I don't know, uh, people that were on my, the first two people I thought of were the, were Sean Slade and Paul Coldery from the Fort Apache studio in Cambridge, Mass. Um, less easy to put a stamp on what they're about. Um, but, but, you know, Daniel Lenoir, a little easier to put a stamp on. He's got these kind of dreamy guitars. Um, and, and so some producers are very, very, uh, they're chameleons and others have this, this kind of palette and sometimes it works, you know, and there's Jay Robbins through some of the, the, the nine, his string of records in the nineties was just unbelievable. And there's a certain amount of similarity, you know, filtered through his lens. That was really, really cool. Um, but then, you know, things can get thrown for a loop. I, and talking with Jay Robbins about two of the Jawbox records where that, uh, John and yellow produced, and for your own special sweetheart is a particularly really favorite record, sonic sounding record of mine. And um, love that sound and big room sounds and big drum sounds. And and but the next record they did for Atlantic sounds kind of bizarre. And particularly the rack tom and the floor tom sound really really weird. And uh, I was lucky enough to ask him a question. I'm like, what happened to that? He's like, yeah, we didn't know that. But then the drum our drummer said like, no room mics on. After they had recorded everything, so the drums sound really good, cool in the room mics, and he made them mute all the room mics. So all they had were these close mics that they hadn't paid maybe as much attention to. And so suddenly you have to produce the record with this new direction. So it was like, oh, you didn't, you know, drummer kind of putting their foot down and making the whole the whole band go in a different direction. Was, I thought really funny story. Um, you, uh, speaking of Jay Robbins, I think one of the things that I've heard in his production is the guitar tones when i listen to like braid when i listen to hey mercedes um even the miranda sound record that he worked on local columbus band um he seems to get like a a i don't know i use the word thick but it's this really nice guitar tone that i to me like the hey mercedes record every night fireworks is sort of the the go-to for this it's just this really nice middle tone, mid mid range tone, where it's it's not. You can still hear the bass lines, but it's not tinny sounding. It doesn't sound thin. Um, I don't know if that's a matter of like double tracking the guitars or if it's just the EQ or or what he's doing there. But to me, that that's one of the things is that his guitar tones on his records always sound really good. I don't, I don't know what his secret sauce is. And what? Well, what's his main instrument? Guitar. There you go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, originally it was bass, but then it was guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, some some producers won't they have kind of like their favorite amps and kind of setups that they'll recommend bands use? Is that a thing? Um. um hopefully, at this point, if they're producing a record, they've got a wealth of experience on what's working and what's not working. Um, and, and, you know, things that I found in the studio, like smaller amps are sometimes sound bigger in the studio than bigger amps, you know, like a small eight or 
eight-inch speaker can sometimes sound bigger than a Marshall stack because for a couple of different reasons, you know, but, but it can, you know, um, smaller snare drums might sound better in the studio than thicker snare drums. Um, you know, this drummer that the, the, the symbols that the drummer are using, they picked cause they probably project live. Does that mean they record well, you know, so there's things that they can pull into that experience and like, well, that's cool, but let's see if we can try this. And hopefully it's not changing the sound of the band, but it help is helping speed up the recording process and mm. save money. Like we don't have to experiment with 30 snare drums, like just buy a Tama black beauty and let's be done with it. And it'll record great. Trust me. You know what I mean? Like, so there's that kind of stuff that hopefully is coming from that point of view, not so much trying to change the tonality, but like I can help speed up this process. I've done this before. And that's that project management thing. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Now you mentioned yeah. about producers that, uh, that maybe don't necessarily have a particular, there aren't as, they're more fluid with their sound. I, we mentioned Nirvana a couple of times. And I think when you talk about Butch Vig, I was looking at his discography, you know, within a span of just a couple years, you have Nevermind and then you have Siamese Dream, which I don't think of those records as sounding the same. And no. I know that Billy Corgan has a, big influence on the way that the Siamese dream record sounds. Um, and you know, he, he's got a, a massive discography of working with, you know, everybody from Sonic youth to gumball to, you know, just a, t a ton of different bands, Freddy Johnston, soul asylum. There's a lot of stuff that Butch Vig worked on in the nineties. So I'm wondering if you mentioned about seeing him in the, in the, sonic highways if he's more on the end of not necessarily producing from the aspect of let's get us you know this particular sound or what have you but getting a but giving more more on the like songwriting and the this would sound cool here or that sort of thing i haven't i haven't seen him other than that you know show is like you guys uh, what he does in the studio. I don't know if anybody has any other, have read anything, what, what he talks about or whatnot, but he doesn't seem to have, I don't think of anything being terribly similar or, or blatantly similar in his discography. I had a chance to see them because he owned uh, smart studios in uh, Madison, which I believe is now closed. Um, in that documentary, you can kind of, the gist of it for me was that he was more the kind of the engineering type in the early days. And then I think, you know, the records got so big and he became such a name that I think it's, it's morphed more into this. He's more of the vibey guy. He's more of the songwriting guru guy and, and, and there to offer particular tips. But I, I, th I do think it's, it, it evolved with him. I think more, he was more in line with an Albini in the earlier days and then it just because the records got so big and and um, and his name became such a bankable uh, thing, I, I think it changed the nature of the way he worked. I think. Hmm. I would say in in general, I would describe him as like there's there tends to be a sheen on the stuff in the '90s. After you know, he's able to kind of capture that commercial big rock sound. I think he he's probably took the nineties and made it radio friendly. Um, 
as as good as anybody did. And then obviously all the garbage stuff has got him all over it um, in terms of like probably what his true sort of um, toolkit is. Um, right. But interesting, he's not credited as producing the first garbage record. It doesn't have a production what? credit. Yeah, so there's an interesting thing about that, right? Because then there's a compromise when that happens. And, um, you know, he was heavily involved in the writing and recording of that record. But, you know, do, does the, 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 if they, the band did that all on their own, there would probably be a little bit of pushback of like, well, you know, I produced it. I'm the drum, you know. So, um, but he certainly, I think Jay is right as far as like, you, you get someone like, I, if you, you know, the label's like, we want, we need to sell records. Uh, I love Jay Robbins as a producer, but they would pick Butch Vig over Jay Robbins. You know what I mean? Like just based on units sold, you've got to go, even though past performance doesn't dictate future, you know, future performance, you'd still put your, you know, you got to roll the dice and we've got to market something, you know, produced by the guy who did Nevermind is going to be a sticker on the front of this or part of the podcast feature you know is going to get a lot more people interested than right than you know hey he did texas is the reason or dismemberment plan like records i love but you know like doesn't sell it's it's, it's a bit niche you know so well speaking of that I, a guy who uh has transitioned from sort of the i guess you'd say more of the cult i don't, I don't know if cult's the right way but who who made records for bands that didn't sell a lot and then had has sort of transitioned into a much bigger career is Ken Andrews, um, who, you know, became known because of his production work on fantastic planet. And then also worked on, uh, blinker, the star and Cooper Lagoon and Pete Yorn. And, you know, those are all good records, but then trans transitions to like paramore and back and i think he did the new jimmy he mixed the new uh, jimmy Eat world record and has a much more i don't really say pop but he he's it seemed to grow gradually him working with larger and larger bands i think he produced like the tenacious d album actually the first one he to me has a particular sound when i hear his production i i hear in him a particular i know he's a big fan of 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 digital of not going in he was, mm-hmm. i think him and steve albini actually had like a a thing back and forth where they did a like a talk and each had their discussed the merits of their particular choices for production because mm-hmm. he goes he's a hundred percent digital and albini's the opposite oh it was m83 he worked on an m83 which was a shock i didn't was like wow that's not a band I would expect him to work with. And then also worked with Candlebox, <laughs> one of their 2000s records. And he seems to be a guy that people go to because they want to get that Ken Andrews production sound. I don't know mm. if it's the digital aspect or if it's something in the way that he produces guitars or drums or whatnot. But do I, any of you guys know or, or do you have any thoughts on the records that he produces? What what he's bringing to the table sonically. I don't. So I know you're a huge Ken Andrews, big fan. And, and, you know, there's, um, 
it's interesting, you know, between him and uh, Butch Walker and some of these, you, you know, even Linda Perry, um, maybe as artists were s- successful, definitely more than me ever, <laughs> right? And then, but have transitioned into this other role in the industry where they found, I would say, unqualified success, you know, hugely successful. Um, so what, you know, what does it bring, uh, you know, it, I don't know that any of them, you know, they all do different things. And, and so it's all really interesting that it, and I think for listeners who don't know, like there's so many more things going on behind the scenes than, you know, you hearing a song, you know, um, um, the amount of times that songs probably been recorded and written and how many times the verse has been trashed and, you know, like there's so many more things going on. I think it's so interesting if nothing else, just to recognize like, you know, yes, a band can write a song in the basement, go to the studio, record it, put it on Spotify. But ninety nine point nine percent of those are are successful to to fifteen people. When you're talking to, let's sell units, let's move product, let's get people into bigger and bigger venues. Like there's a whole nother thing going on behind the scenes. And whether it's someone, you know, Ken's friend at a label or you know, again, past performance, this record he worked on sold well, let's get him to sign, you know, and, and sometimes, um, there's also stigma, you know, like don't give it to that person. That person can't sell any records, you know, because they, you know, and I, I would think someone like Dave Fridman constantly is the thorn in a major label side, um, <laughs> you know, of, with, you know, the Tame Impala, but, but that's why bands want to go to him is because we don't want to sound like anyone else. And that Tame Impala record doesn't sound like to me and there, there there may be clones or something that i'm missing right but when that tame pala came right out you're like nothing else sounds like this holy smokes the mg the first mgmt record mm-hmm. the weezer pinkerton record those records come out and you're like nothing else sounds like this and those records have stood the test of time right But every time I'm sure someone in a major label is like, we'd like Dave Fridman to mix this or produce this. And they probably are like, for the love, no, you know, like, you know, 
I, that's what I think, right? I don't know, but man, I love Dave Fridman's work because it doesn't sound like anything else. And how he does that time and time again is just amazing. Does he make and it unique so to the artist? What'd you say, Johnny? They're just so loud. The Fridman records are extremely loud. Do you notice that? I can't say that I do. That's funny. Yeah, I found like uh, anytime the Sleater Kinney's The Woods comes on or um, the later day Flaming Lips or trying to think of another one, maybe the Mogwai record, uh, like I have to just rush to the volume. uh, (laughs) Um, One of my students was interning with, uh, I want to say it was Peter Cadis who did the the Japan, the last most recent Japan droids record. And I think he would like, I think that band had gone round and round and round and was like getting it mastered by like 10 different people because they were like, we want to, you know, like there was just this argument of, of what was happening in that mastering stage. So it's hard to know if it's Dave Fridman or Mm. the band or the mastering engineer, but, but it's funny that Dave Fridman's name is attached to all those. A lot of engineers have a favorite mastering engineer. So it'd be interesting to look that step up. Um, mm-hmm. but that's funny you say that cause they are definitely distorted. Most of the Fridman records are so I got to turn down the Fridman ones. I got to turn up the Albini ones. Yes. Yeah. I would agree on that. Yeah. One thing I, I would note about the Ken Andrews is, um, I always think of him and looking at his um, discography, I don't know if this is always the case, but I've, I've always thought of him as somebody who actually contributes as a musician to a lot of the records, um, in the way that I guess Brendan O'Brien kind of became known to do. And that's a whole other thing. Like, right. I mean, they're actually playing drums or guitar or s- keyboards or percussion or something or singing. Yeah. Like that's a whole other different kind of producer almost where you're, you can come in with a partial band, a solo artist. You can replace people in the band. I mean, you're buying not only their sort of, uh, project management skills and overall experience, but you're also getting like whatever musicianship they have uh, to the table as well. So I, I, when I think of Andrews, I always think of like, you know, partly why it's set in so much like failures, because I think he's playing some of that stuff. Like on that blinker, the star record, for example. Hmm. Yeah. And I think, And I I don't know that it's always replacing, but I definitely think there's an enthusiasm, um, you know, that um, Jimmy Miller, who did some of the old Rolling Stone records and a lot of that kind of stuff. Excuse me. I think um, Dave Cobb, who's a Nashville producer, does uh, like Jason Isbell records and and, um, um, who else out of I can look it up real quick. But but he is famous for like sitting in the in the room and kind of joining the band in a way, mm-hmm. um, not replacing anyone. Um, but then you get someone like Jack Antonoff, you know, who's just stupidly talented. Um, and he, you, you know, you work with him cause you're like, well, I've got some pretty good ideas and they might be able to like take it to the next level with their musicianship, whether it's, so Jack Antonoff worked with Lord and, and St. Vincent and, and a whole bunch of other really cool acts and his musicianship skills really, I think different people would be drawn to him because of those skills where you'd be drawn to Jay Robbins if you're a guitar based band, right? Because Hmm. that's his forte or, 
you're drawn to Rick Rubin, or I'm sorry, um, Steve Albini, because we're a band and we want to capture what we sound like, you know, like that's, that's when the band gets to pick. And that's, that's usually a really good fit, you know, because you're going for something at that time. If, if, you know, that, that when now that works really well, I think you, you know, you'd go to Dave Fridman and we're like, well, all right, we're ready to do this really weird record. You know, it's here, it's recorded on four track cassette. Will you mix it? You know, and like, well, what could Dave Fridman do with four tracks on cassette? And the answer is a lot, you know, and he's like, okay, you've hired me. I'm going to do my thing to this. You know, it's not going to push faders and add a little, make this one a little brighter and add a little reverb. No, no, he's going to chop that up and make 30 tracks of those four tracks and figure something, you know, and he's going to just, cause he's like, oh, you know, oh, I'm going to make this more difficult than I need to. Cause I'm going to make it weird and I'm going to push it into something I've never done, you know? So that's, that can happen. And Ken Andrews certainly would be part of that. Um, a guy I didn't think of initially as a, an eight, a 90s producer, but when I went back and looked at what he did in the 90s, it, it made sense, is Rick Ocasek. Yeah, right. You know, the, the, Weezer the first and Weezer. Guided by Voices. Guided by Voices. Uh, not a Surf. Did the first sure. Not a Surf record. He also did stuff like Bad Brains in the 90s and Suicide and things that you would not expect him to be involved with. Bad Religion, uh, Degeneration, either singles or albums that he produced. He did a Jonathan Richmond record that I always loved. Yep. And obviously... When you're getting, I think when you're getting the Rick Ocasek sound, you're getting that pop sound that he kind of perfected with the cars. I mean, that first Weezer record, although it's very 90s, when you listen to Buddy Holly, I mean, that's a band that sounds like the offspring of the cars in a lot of ways with the keyboards, keyboard leads and, and stuff that would be at home on a cars record. But you had some other guys on your list that I wanted to bring up, Neil. Guys like Jack and Dino, famously known for working with a lot of sub-pop bands. Um, Brad Wood, who a lot of Chicago, like Liz Fair and Veruca Salt. Yeah, so I think that Exegaville record that Brad Wood did was really, really important. Um, I don't know that sonically... Um, his stuff was always my favorite stuff, but the Exile and Guyville record and the Sunny Day Real Estate record that he worked on, like, continue to be important records to my to me. So to me, Brad Wood's important for those reasons. But those were those were really powerful, impactful records across the industry. You know, it wasn't just just me, but but I definitely thought, you know, and it's interesting. So Jack Indino's out, and you know, there's a couple. Um, you know, uh, Pacific Northwest producers. And, and I'd forgotten about, um, Doug Easley and Grifter and that whole scene down in Memphis, but you're absolutely right. You know, like it's really cool that this regional stuff was kind of 
happening, you know, and these these people were conduits of that. It, there was there's a theme running through that, right? And when when I'm able to teach students and and um, you know, give them sometimes I give them names and sometimes I let them figure out names. But you know, they will take someone like T Bone Burnett. They're like, that's not a name. And you're like, T-Bone's a real name. Look up T-Bone Burnett and see what records they've done. And I've literally had students like, this person's, oh my God, you know, like I love four or five of these records on, you know, that this person's in. I did, had no idea. And that usually is, they they find that out pretty quickly that there's a, there may be a common theme through that this one person is helping funnel, you know, a music history through that this producer plays this kind of role. And Sometimes it's a little bit mythical and a little bit maybe self-grandizing and important, but but it is often you know I mean to look at Rick Rubin's history and to put look at the records of Dixie Chicks and Slayer and Johnny Cash and Run DMC and you know like mm-hmm. you can't deny that all these important records they're all important, but there's also one name that's associated with all of them. You know, like you got to give a little credit to that, you know, it's, and it's, it's amazing. Yeah. But Jack and Dino's, I mean, different and different people, depending on your scene. Right. So my scene is, and is very much in tune with what you guys are about as far as like nineties and, and stuff like that. But, you know, you could get into, you know, is it, um, you know, hip hop, right. There's some really cool underground important people and producer means something different in hip hop language, you know, but oh, yeah. there's definitely, in, in, you know, so whatever niche you want to, you know, talk about, you know, this is very centric to what, to this discussion, but certainly, you know, pick a genre, you know, I mean, there's, there's names through, you know, who've done, you know, Christian albums or whatever. So it's, it, it can be really interesting. I do think it's interesting as I go <clears throat> through the, the list, um, and start looking at location. They're very almost location specific. So like, Albini, Chicago, Sean Slade, Boston, Bradwood, Los Angeles, Jack and Daniel, Seattle. Like, it's kind of neat that there's an area of the country that either they're have a studio in or they were from and typically kind of stay grounded in. Um, just overall for the decade, you get a nice like mix across the U.S. and then. We haven't even talked much about um, outside the U.S. though, but um, you know, in terms of like Nigel Godrich, like how much how different that is. You know, as I was going through and sampling some of the stuff, um, the U.S. stuff versus when you go over and you know, kind of switch playlists and start listening to some of the stuff he produced. It's like, I mean, it literally sounds like it's from another world. Like in terms of like different instruments and just a whole other different aesthetic to it. So like the way that location kind of plays a role in it is, is kind of interesting. Yeah. If I could jump in on that, Jay, I'd like to mention uh, two names on that front, uh, Alan Mulder. And mm. I think that the work that those two guys did all through the nineties and continue to this day is like the, the like landscape. Those are incredibly lush and vibrant with guitars just floating all over the place. I, I can't imagine, um, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the production landscape without those two guys in particular. 
I wish I'd gone. And I, I wish someone had told me in, in college that I should go stand on Alan Mulder's doorstep fight club style and not leave until he accepts me as his assistant engineer. I, I, and there's another <laughs> reality universe that's floating around where, where I did that. <laughs> Who were some other lesser known? Nigel Godrich is, is obviously, in, in terms of people who listen to music, Radiohead and and U two and Paul McCartney. He's worked with a number of major artists. But who are some maybe lesser known producers that have a body of work that you can go? This guy is really doing something interesting with the bands that he's working with. Yeah, now I want to know what Paul Fox is doing these days. How is Paul Fox making his Wikipedia page? Just. You mentioned, uh, Neil, the, um, I'm a massive Sunday Day Real Estate fan myself, but do you not find Diary extremely tinny? Yeah, I, I like I said, I, as far as like it's not a record that I would put up uh, uh, against something else and like let's make sure it sounds this good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's a, a, a lot of those records um, are yeah. results – have weird things going on sonically because it's the wild west as far as transferring from analog way of working to a digital way of working. Mm -hmm. And what worked with two inch tape was not working in the same way. So there's a lot of records that don't sound good for a lot of different reasons. You know, in the eighties, everyone was putting a DX seven on stuff because but in the 90s it's because people were applying those same techniques and i think we've gotten to a point now where people have figured out how to make digital not so brittle um for for a lot of different reasons and i think you know we, that in in you know we had to go through the loudness wars to get through that and all sorts of you know different techniques and it's not always running through analog gear i mean there's a lot of producers who just mix in the box and make really really good sounding records but the technology was just not there the converters weren't good using bright microphones was good for analog using bright microphones was not good for digital you know so mm. but yeah, um, there's overall some of that stuff is i call it, in my class i call it the foo fighters rule because those foo fighter some of those foo fighter records rock but if you really listen to them, they don't really sound that good. Mm -hmm. Like that's not a snare sound. And you're like, oh man, that's that's a that's what I want my snare drum to sound like. You would never ever say that about yeah. a Foo Fighters record. But as a complete song, when you put it on, like it freaking rocks. Like you know, you know what? Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why I struggle like really every really deeply getting into that band. That's interesting. <laughs> you called that out. I hadn't thought of it because there's um at the surface it's like oh that's a great song and then as you get into it deeper there's nothing there to get like because there's sonically it's all mashed and over compressed and like the tones aren't very great and it's kind of a mud yeah which can huh. work for some people but well for but, radio it's great <laughs> right it jumps you know and you know i remember i think uh you know i remember jay having a pretty great conversation with you about the Zwan record and like they had to issue like, no, that's how it's supposed to sound. Everybody like everyone's like, what the hell are you giving us? You know, like, yeah. um, because it, it might, and my point for sometimes talking about that is like, well, you can, you can finesse individual parts and that's not great either. I mean, no one, 
Neil Peart's a great drummer, but very few people are like, give me the Neil Peart drum sound. Like, what is that drum sound? I don't know what that means, you know? And that's where, you know, so there's, there's both ends of the extreme aren't great either, but the rush records tend to, you know, hold the test of time a little better, I think. Um, but, you know, the sum of the parts is what ultimately matters. Um, you know, there's certain records like the Sunny Day Real Estate record, like, you know, Diary versus the Rising Tide are completely different sounding records. And, you know, they will hit different people at different times and do different things. I think someone like Will Yip, who does, um, I think Terrifical, Peripheral Vision by Turnover is just an amazing, amazing, probably 2016 record. And I think Will Yip's production is part of the reason why that record is so good. I think their songwriting is good, but there's just a, a cohesiveness that's across that record that just sounds lush in a really, really cool way. Um, I think sometimes really good, that's where the producer, that's that extra, or mixing engineer, that's that extra few things that bring that all together that helps realize people's vision in a really interesting way that maybe, you know, a band recording on their own is not going to, not maybe going to do. And that's the compromise because if the band's producing it themselves, they have to be both the artistic director and the project manager. And that's not fun. You know, something's got to give. Right. Those two things are at odds. Yeah, absolutely. Who are some underappreciated producers that are lesser known but that have a a really interesting catalog well johnny will know this little guy from canada named bob rock (laughs) jesus christ (laughs) who uh i'm sure we're not going to talk about but it kind of owned the 90s uh based on one metallica record um i i want to point out and we can discuss this johnny in a future hip cast but Bob Rock one made one of my favorite Treasury Hip records. Uh, yes, Container. Uh, World Container was a great comeback record for them. Um, it kind of fell apart after that, I would say. No, the but, next uh, record's terrible. It's terrible. It's yeah, the worst it's hip record. Yeah, it really is. But um, yeah, I don't he, even acknowledge he it. Them, he definitely got them back on track with World Container, and um, kudos to him for doing that for sure. Uh, that's a record I didn't know the band had in them, and, and they hit it. Every song on that record is great. Um, yeah, it's a song. It's all records. Not, not to put you on the spot, but are there any other uh, producers, Canadian producers, that um, jumped to mind for you or you might have had in your list that we haven't mentioned? Um, you know, I'm trying to think of some that, that would have crossed the border uh, that you'd be aware of. But most of the, the notable ones – from a Canadian perspective, you know, they're working with smaller bands. It it was, they had an impact in Canada only. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, you know what? How about um, Dave Ogilvy, uh, skinny puppy. He's worked with a bunch of guys and they're Vancouver band. Okay. Trying to think here. Well, wasn't, I mean, out of the night, wasn't, I mean, weren't there a lot of cool, like, uh, Bands coming out of Montreal, out of like in that as far as in the nineties. Not in the nineties though. That that was more the the two thousands. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, all those. I would say most of the 
the members of those bands are making records in the 90s, but they're they're not doing anything yet. I mean, it's it's in basically in 02, 03, 04 when all of them start to to break on almost at the same time. It's like Broken Social Scene, Wolf Parade, Arcade Fire, The Deers, uh, like it's just happening left, right, and center all at the same time. But yeah, I would say from a production standpoint, yeah, there's not that many notable names, I would say. Neil, what about What's you that? guys that are, are, are producers that are lesser known but worthy of checking out? Well, yeah, so I think I, I, I think Johnny hit a couple that I, like I remember buying the house of G, v, G versus B based on the producer on that record, you know, Ted Nicely. Um, Eli Janney was also out of that scene and did some pretty cool records, mm-hmm. um, which which was always, um, I mean, they're, they're, when you could get a hold of credits, <laughs> which is kind of a problem now, right, without having to go to look stuff up. I mean, that stuff would, you know, it, it would catch your eye. And if you were on the fence or, you know, like, oh, I'll buy this because so-and-so's name's attached to it, you know, like, you know, people... I don't know that Dave Cobb holds that same kind of thing out of Nashville, but for a lot of people, he does um, in the work, the records that he work on, works on. Um, no, I mean, we've hit a lot of the people that were on my list. I mean, those were really influential people. You know, Tim O'Hare was also out of that um, Fort Apache scene. Um, and there's just so many great records out of, out of the 90s, out of that Boston scene. You know, Dinosaur Jr. and the Lemonheads and Julian Hatfield and... Um, uh, Blake babies before that, you know, just like, you know, that was almost like, you know, a couple people, whether it was proximity or whether that person had anything to do with it, there were so many great records. Yeah. I got one more to add to that list. How about live through this? There you go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that stuff, you know, was, was important in this, in a way that I didn't, it took me a while to figure out like, you know, there's, you know, there's five names on almost there. There's four names on every Beatles records. And there's a fifth name that, that's on all of them except one, you know, and George Martin was this link, you know, playing this role of, of project manager. And then oftentimes, you know, like before the Beatles had reached their any kind of musical maturity and they were doing their experimentation, like, oh, you want a symphony? I can help you do that. Right. And and you know, Quincy Jones, you know, his work through, you know, unbelievable amount of, uh, of work, you know, Michael Jackson, you know, but other stuff as well. Right. So there's this producer can be a really, that role can be really, really powerful. I think what's taken over the role now is the Jack Abramoff. Um, who's the guy? Jack Abramoff? Antonoff. Yeah. Antonoff. Thank you. Um, Oh yeah, right. Different guy. Yeah, different Jack, guy. Jack, Jack, Jack Antonoff. Um, is it Ryan Tedder from uh, these songwriters? Max Martin, Doctor Luke. You know those. Those are kind of we moved away maybe from producers making careers, and I think these songwriters are really uh, kind of playing that role now. Um, so much so that they have, you know, apparently all the Max Martin and Doctor Luke demos of some of the songs they've worked on for Katy Perry and and they're like the Max Martin demos are apparently as good as anything else that could be released. Like his singing is spot on and the production sounds amazing. And 
but it's like, well, he doesn't want to be a star. It's for someone else. You know, I think that's where we're at right now. It's that, it's that Brill building, um, songwriter driven content where it's a matter of finding the right person and putting them with the right song. And, you know, I don't want to say any monkey can produce it, but, but those two things equal the hit rather than Quincy Jones is also in the room or, you know, Jay Robbins is in the room or, you know, that's not really our scene right now, but that's really what's driving the music industry right now. Um, a guy that I wanted to mention that I don't think in terms of Britpop is sort of overshadowed by a guy like Nigel Godrich is Stephen Street. Um, you know, sort of made his bones in the eighties with the Smiths, but then went on to do like park life by the, by blur and went on to work with a lot of other bands that were big over there, but not over here, like sleeper, and Duffy, a lot of those Britpop bands, Catatonia, um, also worked on the Breakthrough Cranberries album uh, that had Linger and those big singles on it. And, you know, I I definitely know what Blur sounds like because of what he did on Park Life and, you know, sort of honed that band from what they were earlier and made them into something really, truly unique. Streets like a jungle So that's a guy that I probably gets a little overlooked, but has a really interesting discography as well. I don't know that uh, this name gets overlooked, but I, same um, thought in terms of just kind of an interesting discography and story is Terry Date. So he ends the 80s doing um, Soundgarden, Louder Than Love. He starts the 90s doing Mother Love Bones, Apple. Then he gets into all the Pantera records. So he does Cowboys from Hell and mm-hmm. Vulgar Display of Power. And then he does Batter- Motorfinger. By the end of the decade, um, he does Handsome, which is one of our favorites from the previous seasons. Mm-hmm. By the end of the decade, he's like the go-to guy for new metal. So he's doing Incubus, Stain, Limp Bizkit, Otep, Deftones, like Slipknot, like... By the time you get into the 2000s, like he is the guy to do all those bands. So kind of an interesting story there, you know, kind of building the credibility with, I think, Soundgarden and Pantera. And then by the end of the you know, decade, he's the guy everybody wants to go to for the the big alt rock sound uh, on the metal side. Yeah. And then another guy is um, Jack Joseph Puke. So mm-hmm. if you look at his discography in the 70s and 80s, it's... <clears throat> mind-boggling um in terms of like amy grant and uh what else we got here michael w smith and 
Melissa Manchester and like all these like soft rock Christian th- Smokey Robinson. And then you get to the nineties and like from a production standpoint, you can see the, how it all works out. Cause he starts working with jellyfish and the grays and like, okay, like that approach makes sense for those bands and that like musicianship. Um, but then we look at like what he does as a um, mixer and as an engineer, it's kind of all over the place. So like he mixes L seven <laughs> Uh, he mixes Big Rack, he mixes Sunvolt, um, he mixes Nonasurf, you know, um, he does a bunch of work with the Black Crows, which kind of doesn't really fall in line with some of those other bands. So just a really whole, uh, Celebrity Skin he mixed. Um, so just a really like diverse, uh, catalog of stuff that you can kind of see like, some of the thread there, but um, maybe you wouldn't have guessed uh, when you look at the discography. No, that's crazy. There's a, yeah, there's a, another guy, Michael Bean, Beanhorn or Beanhorn, who did uh, also some Soundgarden records, and he's a pretty well known, uh, had some pretty big, like, I always thought the bass sound and whole celebrity skin was really good, and he did that record. Um, but he had done the um, Love Battery and some of the kind of offshoot of the other, some of the bands you were mentioning. Mm-hmm. That's another name that's pretty cool. Yeah, Jack Joseph Puig though is a as a monster. And we can get into like mixing engineers. That's the the Lord Alge brothers and stuff like that. But but and 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 but Jack Joseph definitely like uh, outside of and I guess I was kind of staying small indie. I mentioned Quincy Jones and yeah, there's a whole and and you know notice that they're almost all dudes. <laughs> there's a sort of a, a lacking of of this yeah in this boys club right so it's it's a really kind of ridiculous um state of affairs that that but that's starting to change for sure um just recently though but but that's all 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 lacking interesting Even yeah the, there were there was definitely um some progress for women musicians in the 90s but not in the production engineering uh in business side of things huh no and it really has changed you know so that there's you know um uh alicia keys you know works worked with a female team and and that's start there's starting to be quite a bit more uh of that going on behind the scenes and 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 all and and i don't know about hip-hop because that's not my world but definitely electronic music and definitely in rock music you know, women have been wrong, songwriting and vocal producing, and uh, but as far as like, I think Cheryl Crow is the, one of the few women that's been nominated for producer of the year. I think because she co-produced her record with someone else. I don't think for the Grammy nods, it's it's pretty um, pretty lacking. There have been classical engineering Grammys and engineering Grammys, but I think when you get producers, it's it's pretty. Um, uh, lacking. Um, what? So that's a really good thing to think about, and or an interesting thing to think about. What in the world are they evaluating to be able to give an award for producer? Then, if the it can be defined by almost anything within <laughs> the realm of making the record, like then what is a good one, or one that's better than all the others? Like, how would you even begin to evaluate that? Uh, I am. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Pass. I know. 
<laughs> I guess maybe just the quality of the record overall. Uh, I don't know. Here it is. Janet, Jackson. Janet Jackson was the first to receive a nomination and producer of the year non-classical. Mariah Carey, Paula Cole, Cheryl Crow, Lauren Hill, Lauren Christie. She's in the Matrix songwriting team and Linda Perry. So, yeah, I stand corrected. Janet Jackson. But that's all uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. So I'm not sure. I mean, that record sounds like a. That's all Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis producing that record for sure. So, but she must be on there. Interesting that her. Missy Elliott did not come up because it wasn't that's she all, known as a producer before. That's all Timberland. Okay. That's going to be that's Timberland produced. I mean, Missy Strong, but I and I don't, you know, I'm not in the studio, so they could come through and tell me I'm totally wrong, but. I'm pretty sure all the stuff that she did was all Timberland working in the back behind the scenes. And and again, you know, co-directing and, 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 you know, Missy Elliott, not, she's not a pawn by any means, but, I'm, but that would be my, that would be my guess. Gotcha. Yeah. But yeah, it's a great question, right? So, you know, and then even, it's okay. You know, producer of the year classical, like, wait, what? Like, wouldn't that be the conductor? <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, shouldn't the conductor be the producer? Because the conductor is making the choices of what's going on, you know. The, right. And, you know, if you're a good recording engineer for classical music, you, you're placing the mics in the right spot, but you're, but there's no processing. There's no song selection. There's no, there's no processing. There's no EQ. There's no deep reverb or delay. Or let's try, you know, swapping out the entire trombone section with a different, you know, like there's nothing to be done for, you know, so like – that that's even funnier to think about. I don't know that I've ever given it that much thought, but that's hilarious. <laughs> Good stuff. Gentlemen, yeah, it's it's been a long episode. We're past <laughs> the hour <laughs> and fifteen mark. Uh thank you for sticking around if you listen. <laughs> well, this is just recording. T- Tim's gonna edit it all up. It'll be like a twenty minute episode or be right. awesome. Make First of all, I'm gonna good. jack up the speed and then I'm gonna <laughs> do some trimming. So, Neil, Johnny, thank you both for for joining us and, and contributing to this episode. Uh, I think that hopefully we've given people a little bit of a understanding of what producers do and, and maybe a nice you know list to check out that can maybe connect the dots between these producers and what's in their catalogs. And if they're not familiar already, maybe they can check out some new folks that they might be interested in. Yeah, there's um I know for a fact on Apple Music most of the producers we talked about have playlists up there so either Apple made them or somebody they're you know just a a fan made them so you can go check out you know their catalogs and get a sense of what they they sound like pretty easily. It's nice I'm that sure. producers are even recognized by digital music services. I know Apple Music has a whole behind the boards playlist uh category for producers. So Alan Mulder behind the boards top 15 tracks well that's a cool that is really cool i did not know that um and i will tell you so part of the 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 music modernization act in the u.s and sound exchange is helping producers and actually engineers get paid um from digital so there's there's money on the line for even engineers now and non-featured performers and i mean it's it's made it more complicated but that's one of the reasons that some of that stuff is happening is because there's money to be made. It's always about the money, isn't it? It is. (laughs) 
after uh, almost what? How many episodes? Six hundred? Are we closing in on? We finally no, real- hit it out. No, we haven't even hit five hundred yet. <laughs> oh, we're, I actually, okay. I figured that out. Five hundred is going to hit next August. So get ready. Five one. We're less than okay. a year away from the five hundredth episode. That's amazing. We won't do anything special. We'll just show up, do our job, <laughs> and do it in the next one. Five oh one. Completely without any fanfare. No high fives. Blue collar. Job. <laughs> Just nice job. Move along. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we need to thank our patrons who voted in this. We need to thank, obviously, Johnny for coming up with this idea. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Johnny. Yeah, My pleasure. pleasure. And you can go to our website, uh, or our, our, our links, dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com to get to our Patreon page. Join us for as little as two bucks a month to join the conversation with our weekly or uh, our monthly polls, our um, various levels, which allow you to pick albums after 12 months. Uh, we have t-shirts, stickers, uh, and of course the polls that pick our 80s episodes, which are every other month. And lastly, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. So for JM Tim, we're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash digmeout and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook Twitter and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com. Oh.